Thank you, worship team. You can go ahead and be seated as you are. Welcome to Crossroads Church. If you are new with us today, I want to say welcome to you. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads. And today uh, we are wrapping up our series that we've been in. Mine is kind of a detour last week uh, into world events, but a series that we've called The Friendship Dilemma. Where over the course of these last couple of weeks, we've been really diving into what researchers call uh, the epidemic of loneliness. This reality of the human condition condition where we find ourselves more connected than we've ever been before and yet in this spiral of loneliness that's not only like impacting our mental well-being but also our physical well-being where people are dying by what medical personnel call deaths of despair it is something that it seemingly all of the world is talking about right now. Just two, three weeks ago, Apple News released a whole like magazine, digital magazine of content on this very issue, looking at it, answering or asking the question, answering the question in something they called the friendship recession. See, the reality is what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, what the world realizes is whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, regardless of how spiritual you are, friendship matters, doesn't it? Friendship matters in this world. And so over the course of this series, we've been taking on the real-life issues of friendship, looking at them, trying to answer the questions of what does friendship look like? How do we get ourselves out of the spiral of this epidemic of loneliness? And what does that look like to experience community, particularly from a biblical worldview? And so if you've missed the first few weeks, just let me kind of give you a quick recap of where we've been. Week one, we talked about the foundation of friendship where we tried to answer the question, why does it seem that friendship is absolutely essential, not just to our well-being, but to our actual existence as humans? We put an answer to that. In week two, we talked about digital friends. John, our great pastoral resident, came and spoke about digital media and the realities of it and its impact on our culture and in our friendships. And the reality of that impact and that influence is true whether you're on social media or not. It is impacting the way that you relate to other people. In week three, we talked about brothers in the trenches. Pastor Chris came and he, and he broke down the different types of relationships that we have in our lives. And the overwhelming feedback from that sermon was actually largely from men who realized that they did not have the most important relationship, that of covenantal friends in their lives. Then last week, Pastor James came and, and spoke to us about what do we do when it comes to unhealthy and toxic relationships in a message that we called Unfriended. And that brings us today to today where we're wrapping up this series with the friend that we all need. Now, when we open up the pages of Scripture... One of the things that we see is that we are given many different metaphors and pictures and images of how God relates to us. For example, uh, one of the great images of Scripture of God relating to us is as the Creator. This is one of my most favorite ways that God relates to us. You don't have to spend a lot of time here at Crossroads to know that eventually I'm going to get to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's just going to happen, all right? And so, like, like to see God as, as the creator of the universe. We see that we relate to God as uh, He is our Father. In fact, we call Him our Heavenly Father. We, we see ourselves as His children who He loves, we see God as a king who we are to submit to. We see him as the suffering servant, the savior. We open up the pages of scripture and at times we see that we're relating to God when he is the judge of our lives and other times when he is our counselor. We open up the book of Psalms and we see God relating to us as a loving father and also as a nurturing mother. 
We read through the Old Testament and it is literally story after story after story of God being, being presented to us as the great provider of our lives. That through the entirety of the scriptures, we see time and time again all of these different ways that God is showing us how he wants to relate to us. And so today, what comes to mind when you crack open the scriptures to say John chapter 15 and you read these words that you are my friends. You are my friends. Now, we could spend the entirety of our day looking at all the different ways that God relates to us and it would be good. But there is something deep within all of us that when we hear these words that God is our friend, that there's something deep within us that stirs our soul. It stirs to the deepest level. It meets a longing of our souls to know the precious reality that God is our friends. Now, honestly speaking, that when it comes to God as our friend, this is not something that we talk a lot about in church world. Um, in fact, if I was honest with you, even as a pastor, that this isn't something that I, that I ponder often. In fact, if I was to be very transparent with you, when it comes to the understanding that God is my friend, it's something that I have difficulty with, and maybe you do too. See, the difficulty that I have when it comes to, to God being my friend actually stems all the way back to when I was a, when I was a teenager. And one time uh, here at this church, I grew up in this church, I was part of the youth group here, and one time in youth group I referred to God as my bud. And I had this older lady who volunteered in the youth group, and in front of the entire youth ministry she stood up and she chastised me and she said, Look, Jesus is not your friend. He is your Lord. Don't you forget that. And those are words that I've never forgotten. Maybe you have a story that's similar to that. Or, or maybe your difficulty in, in relating to God as friend comes from kind of the reality of how, how personal or intimate that kind of relationship might be. And for you, it's much easier to see God, say, as a disciplinarian who sits up kind of in the you know, throne room of heaven and looks down upon this world, making sure that you do what you're supposed to do and that when you don't, he's very quick to whip you back into line. Or maybe for you, the difficulty in, in seeing God as a friend is because you don't, quite understand, you don't quite understand who God is. It would be kind of like having a uh, famous movie star as a friend. You know, if you, if you know me, I love Tom Cruise as an actor. Like, my favorite movie is Tom Cruise playing Tom Cruise. Like, you just signed me up for that movie every day of the week. Like, I, I love it. But admittedly, it'd be a little weird if Tom Cruise showed up this afternoon, right? And we drank Cokes on the sofa in my living room and watched the Packers and the Broncos play. Like, that would just be, that would just be odd. Like, like, that's not how I think of Tom Cruise. I, I, don't, I don't know him personally. I only see him through what he does. And sometimes I think that's the way we see God. That we see God just through what he does. And when it comes to this whole idea of God is my friend, we go, <laughs> I don't even know what that looks like. Like, like how would I act? How would I behave? What would, what would we do? Or maybe for you, the, the difficulty in relating to, to God as, as your friends is that, is that you're not really even sure that he actually wants to be your friends. And so for you, you know, you just kind of keep Jesus at an arm's distance and you kind of just operate like, hey, you just hang out in heaven, I'll be down here, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, and we'll all be, we'll all be good. And so today as we approach this, the question before us is, is what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean for God to be our friends? Like, what does that look like in our lives? How are we, how are we to think about that? 
Well, we're going to answer that question by opening our Bibles actually to John chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If you don't, don't worry, we'll put it on the screen for you. But as you open there, know that when we open up this passage, if you have a Bible where Jesus' words are all in red, this entire chapter is almost entirely red. And the reason for that is because we are right in the middle of what is called the upper room discourse. That Jesus is in kind of the final moments of his life. John chapter 13 through John chapter 16 is this discourse. It's this dialogue from Jesus. It's actually one of the greatest dialogues that we have of anywhere in the scripture and one of the longest teachings that we have of Jesus in the New Testament. And he's in these last moments of his life, 24 hours away from the cross. And he knows that in just a few hours that he will be arrested, that he'll be accused, convicted, and ultimately sentenced to die on a cross. And so he's sitting in this upper room with his disciples, these guys who he has spent every waking moment with for the last three years. They're in this celebration of what we call the Passover feast, a grand celebration and festivities around this in Jewish culture. He's there with his disciples. They're eating this meal And he knows that in less than 24 hours, he's going to die. And in this moment, he looks at these guys who are so close to him. And he speaks at a heart level to them that these are the last words, literally, of a dying friend. And so as he begins in John chapter 15, as he's speaking in John chapter 15, he begins to tell the disciples what life is going to look like after he leaves. And he starts making this this illustration to a vine where he says that as long as a branch is connected to a vine, then there's life that flows through it. But but there's times where the vine or the where the branch breaks away from the vine and and where the where the branch is cut off from the vine, and when the branch is cut away from the vine, there is no life. It dies and it withers. And so he starts having this conversation with his disciples about what we would call the vine life, what it looks like to live within the vine, what it looks like to have life within the vine, that these are the essentials of vine life. And so he says in John chapter 15, starting in verse 12, he goes, this is what the vine life looks like. This is my commandment. This is what it looks like to live within the vine, that you love one another as I have loved you. To which we go, well, Jesus, what does, what does that look like? What does it look like to love others as you have loved me? He says, well, let me tell you, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That you are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command of you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, as we read this passage, what is completely lost on us is how remarkable this moment actually is. That this is one of the most remarkable moments in all of human history, and let me tell you why. Because in this moment, up until this point, with Jesus speaking to his disciples, in the entirety of human history, only two people were ever given the designation of God's friend. Moses and Abraham. Like the who's who of the Bible. The big boys of the faith. Only those two guys were ever called the friends of God. And now Jesus is standing there before his disciples, and by extension us, and he looks at us, and he says, you are my friends. This is no small thing. This is no small thing. This is an extraordinary moment in human history for Jesus to look upon us and say to us that we are 
his friends. The very thought of it stirs deep within our souls. We long to hear these words from God that you are my friends. It is no small thing here. Jesus actually tries to help us understand what this means by making a comparison to us. He compares friendship to that of slavery or, or servanthood. He says a, a slave or a servant doesn't know his, his master's business, but then he goes on and he says, but a friend knows exactly what, what the father is up to. A friend knows exactly what a father and I have been up to, what we're about, who we are, that everything that the father has said to me, I've made it known to you. That's the difference between friendship and slavery. That you guys, you're on the inside. That you know everything that I've put out there. That everything the Father says, I've let you in. You're in the circle. I've let you in on all of it. Why? Because you're my friends. You're my friends. See, as we read through the Gospel of John, one of the things that we see for the reason that Jesus came to this earth is so that we might know what God is like and what he is up to, what he's doing, so that we might have a relationship with God. God. In the previous chapter, in John chapter 14, Jesus is trying to explain this to his disciples, and Philip raises his hand and goes, Jesus, how do we know? How do we know what's going on? How do we know where you're going? And Jesus says, because everything that the Father has given to me, I've given to you. That I haven't hidden any of it from you. That, that you see me, you see what the Father's doing. In other words, Jesus says, look, you don't have to sit on a tree wondering what God is like and what he's up to. If you look at me, you'll see it. And so through the entirety of the book of John is, is Jesus taking the things that were given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and he shows how it was revealed, how it was revealed through Jesus, how it was revealed ultimately to show that it was a pointer, a marker, an illustration of what God is like and what he is doing. So take, for example, John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we have the image of the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, the Lamb of God, people would bring lambs to the altar to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And in John chapter 1, you have, you have Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and someone sees him and says, hey, 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 that guy right there, that's the Lamb of God. In other words, that's the one who's come to die for the sins of the world. In John chapter 2, you have this whole conversation about the temple. The temple was the place that people went to relate to God, to experience God. And Jesus says, hey, look, I am the temple. And I'm telling you, in three days, the temple is going to be torn down. But don't, don't you fret, because, because better is coming. That it will be resurrected, and it's going to be better than you could ever imagine. In, in John chapter 3... We have this picture of Jesus on this pole being lifted up. It goes all the way back to the Exodus story when the Jewish people are wandering through the desert for 40 years. You remember this? They're wandering through the desert. And there's this moment in the desert where people start to get sick. And God tells Moses to take this snake and to wrap it around a pole and to hold it up. It's actually the sign that we use in our modern day for medicine. And Moses holds up the pole with the snake around it. And the promise is, is that anybody who looks upon the pole will be healed. You fast forward to John chapter 3 and we're told that Jesus is the one that will be held up on the pole and that whoever views him, whoever sees him, will be healed. In John chapter 4, in John chapter 4, 
We're told that Jesus is the living water, that whoever drinks from him will have everlasting life. In John chapter 6, we're told that he's, he's the bread, the manna that falls from heaven. In John chapter 8, we're told that Jesus is the light. In John chapter 10, we're told that he's the good shepherd. Time and time again, through the book of John, what we're being showed is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things that were given to the Old Testament so that we would see and know and be, know what God is up to when it comes to what he's doing in this world. That Jesus comes in and says, I'm the fulfillment of all of them. I'm the best picture that you got when it comes to God. And I'm here to reveal to you what the Father is like, what he's doing. And so we get all the way to John chapter 15 in the last moments of Jesus's life. And he looks at his disciples, these guys who have given their lives to him over the last three years. And he says, hey, here's what God's doing. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you just to be some slave where he's ordering you around and telling you what to do. Jesus says, I want to be friends. He says, I want to walk side by side. I want to share in conversation with you. I want to experience the great joys and the deep trials of your life. I want you to join in the relationship that the Father and I share together. It's a remarkable moment that Jesus invites us into the relationship that he shares with the Father, that Jesus invites us into the relationship that he shares with the Holy Spirit. A relationship that is both known and being known. That's about giving and receiving of, of this amazing love. That it's this reciprocal nature that goes on and on and gone. It's mysterious and deeply satisfying. I mean, think of the most deeply satisfying friendship that you have ever experienced. Where you didn't have to filter anything in your life. That's what Jesus is inviting you into. The kind of relationship that the, that the Trinity shares that you and I are invited into. I mean, this is what Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, when he, when he said these words. That they, that the glory, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that Jesus has has now been given to his disciples, has been given to his followers. That they may be one even as we are one. That I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. I mean, being a friend of Jesus means being in this perfect relationship where we are giving and receiving a love that is so tight, so close, so personal, so intimate, we are essentially one with the Trinity. That is a stunning truth to wrap our minds around. And it's a bit hard for us, isn't it? It's a bit hard for us to, to picture this. I mean, I, I've thought for a long time over the last couple of weeks, how can I illustrate this? How can I, how can I make this real? How can, I, how can I make this, like, you know, feel for us? And what I've concluded is I can't. There's not an illustration that I can come up with that speaks to the great reality of us being invited into relationship in this way. The closest, the closest thing that I could get to, it's not perfect, has to do with my relationship with my own children. Uh, a mentor of mine several years ago shared with me a story um, that really I've, I've never forgotten when he was young. See, when he was young, he had a dad who, who had struggled relating to him, didn't spend a lot of time with him. 
His dad was a man of few words. He didn't share his feelings very well. He kept to himself. And one day his dad was going to go out to the hardware store and run some errands. And uh, my mentor's mom told, you know, her husband, his dad, and said, hey, (laughs) why don't you take the kid with you? And his response was, what am I going to do with him? And the mom, his mom replied, just let him be with you. I've never forgotten that story. And almost every time that I leave the house to go to the store or go on an errand, I almost always ask one of my kids if they want to come with. And particularly when they were young, they were eager to jump in the car to be with dad. Now, maybe that was because if they went to the store with dad, they knew that they got good things, you know, like root beer. And not just like a little sip, like their mom gives like a whole bottle, you know. But more than that, more than that, more than that, they went because they also knew that they got to be with me. They got to be in on what I was doing. Interestingly enough, letting us in on what the Father is doing is what Jesus calls friendship. And it's exactly what we see in both Abraham and Moses the friends of God in the Old Testament. That in the story of Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he says to him, hey, Abraham, I'm going to let you in on what's going on. I'm going to let you in on the plan. That I'm going to give you a kid, like a bunch of kids, like generations upon generations of kids, which was a pretty big deal because, you know, Abraham was way past being able to have kids at this point. And God says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to give you generations of kids. And on top of that, I'm going to give you a land. And guess what? Through that land and through your descendants, you're going to bless the entire world. Blessing is going to come because of your descendants through the entire world. Abe, join in, man. I'm letting you in. That's the plan. A few years later, God comes to Moses. And Moses, as he's kind of wandering around, comes to this bush that's burning, and God begins to speak to him and says, Hey, Moses, I've heard the groans of my people in Egypt. I see the toil that they've been under for the last 400 years as they've been slaves to Pharaoh. I'm letting you in on what's going on. Here's the plan. You're going to be my mouthpiece, and you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, boy, you got the wrong guy. God's like, no. Moses, you're the man. This is the plan. I'm letting you in on what I'm doing. And as cool as those two stories are, the relationship that Jesus is inviting us into, the relationship that God wants with us goes even further than those two stories. Because what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 goes all the way back. I told you we'd get to Genesis. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, all the way back to the relationship that God desires with the people that he created to do life with us when Adam and Eve were walking in the coolness of the garden and God was right there with them. That he wants us to experience all that life has to offer. He wants to experience all of life with us just like I do with my kids. One of my favorite quotes, and maybe you've seen it before, is from Bob Goff, where he writes these words, that every day God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where he sends us a rigid itinerary. He simply invites us. God asks what he's made us to love, what it is that captures our attention, what feeds the deep, indescribable need of our souls to experience the richness of this world that he has made. And then leaning over us, he whispers, let's go do that. Let's go do that. See, God is not content simply sitting up in the throne room of heaven and watching your life unfold. That he wants to experience it with you. 
the mundane things of life like going to the post office, to the excitement that you feel as you ride down the water slides at Waterworld, to the smile that comes over your face as you bite into a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, to the joy, the joy that you feel when you give your wedding vows on your wedding day, to the grieving of someone that you've lost who you deeply love, to the fear that washes over you as you hear the doctor utter the word cancer, to the hardships and trials that this world brings. He wants to experience all of that with you. That's what it means to be a friend. And Jesus contrasts this remarkable reality with slavery, with slavery. In Jesus' mind, slavery is the opposite of friendship. And he says that the slaves, they don't get in on the big picture. The slaves, they don't, they don't really know what's going on. They, they don't get the big explanations. The slave is just told what to do. Do that, do this, jump this high, jump that low. That's slavery. And honestly speaking, slavery is the basis of religion, not relationship. The slavery is the basis of religion, not relationship. We see this so clearly in the history of Israel. See, for most of the Jewish people, they believed that what God wanted most from them is to be good rule followers, to be good religious people, to be good at religion. And so what they did is they took God's laws and they piled and layered as many men-made laws as they could on top of God's laws so that no one had a chance to break God's laws. And then, if no one broke God's laws, at the end, that maybe God would be pleased and would let you into heaven. And so you have these moments, like in Isaiah chapter 58, where the nation of Israel is totally confused because they think that they're doing everything right. And if you read Isaiah 58, it does look like they're doing everything right. I mean, they're following the rules, they're fasting, I mean, they're doing it all. And God comes to the Alpha prophet of Israel, a man named Isaiah, and he says, hey, Isaiah, I need you to go deliver some news to the people. I need you to tell them their sins and their trespasses. In other words, they ain't doing it all right. To which we go, are, are you sure? Because the list looks pretty good. And God goes, yeah, you tell them, Isaiah. You tell them that they have been so consumed with the rules that they forgot what it looks like to have relationship with me and relationship with others. Back in college, I worked in the restaurants, and I started by washing dishes, and after the summer, right before I began college, the kitchen manager came to me, and she asked me the question, can you cook? And with a big smile and all the bravado that I could muster, I said, yeah, I make a mean peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> and she said, great, we'll teach you everything else. And so she paired me up with this trainer, this mentor, and uh, we called him Big Mike, and Big Mike, honestly, he wasn't big at all. He was actually quite skinny. And, uh, and yet he was an amazing, amazing cook. In fact, any skills that I have in the kitchen largely come from Big Mike. Now, outside of cooking, best I could tell from Big Mike, his three main interests were women, partying, and drinking in that order. And the reason that I know that is because he told me the very first day that I worked with him. So at the time, I was living in Omaha, Nebraska, and at that time, Omaha was like 90% of people who lived in Omaha identified as Catholic. They identified as, as Catholic, 
which meant that leading up to Easter, every Lent on Fridays, we would cook a ton of fish. Now, this was totally brand new to me. Like, I didn't grow up Catholic. Apparently, I didn't have any Catholic friends because this was wild. Like, I had never experienced anything like this. So Big Mike on Fridays would come in, and before he would start his shift, he would have me make him a blackened uh, salmon, a blackened, a spicy salmon uh, for him to eat for dinner. Now, I've always been a curious person. I've been never afraid to ask the awkward question. And so one day, as I'm making the salmon, I looked at Big Mike, and I said, hey, Big Mike, why do you eat fish on Fridays? And he kind of looked dismissively at me, and he said, because I'm Catholic. And I said, okay, why do you eat fish on Fridays? And he said, he said well, because I'm Catholic, a good Catholics, good Catholics go to heaven, and the way that you're a good Catholic is by eating fish on Friday during Lent, and I figured that I need all the help that I can get. <laughs> what I realize now that I wish I had seen back then is that Big Mike was caught in the stuff of slavery. He was caught in the stuff of slavery. He was a, he was a slave. He was caught in the stuff of, of religion. Just do as you're told. And in his world, that meant being a good Catholic, which meant eating fish on Fridays so that maybe he could impress God and make it into heaven. And Jesus comes along to Big Mike and all the Big Mikes here today, and he says, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. I, I do not desire you to be my slave. I want you to be my friend. Which honestly is a little bit confusing to us because of verse 14, isn't it? where Jesus says that you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I mean, that certainly sounds like be good, obey, eat fish on Fridays, and you can be my friends. I mean, honestly, that's, that's how most of us typically read this passage. That if you clean up your life, that is, if you obey, if you eat fish on Fridays during Lent, then you can be my friend, and as my friend, I will die for you. And I hear this kind of language all the time. People come up all the time and, and would say to me, Pastor, <laughs> like I got I to get my life cleaned up, and then I can come to church. They say things like, man, like you don't want me in the building because if I walk through that threshold, man, like lightning's going to burn that place down. If you knew my story, if you knew what my life really was like, you would know that Jesus has no interest in me. The reality is that that is slave language. And everything about that is antithetical to the gospel that we read about in the scripture. Listen up. If we, we will misunderstand what Jesus is saying. If we translate these words, if we interpret these words, if we, if we see these words as saying that we have to work in order to be God's friends, in order to be Jesus's friends. See, the reason that we misunderstand this passage comes from that little English word, if. When we read the word if here, we read it as cause and effect. If you do what I command, if you obey, if you eat fish on Friday, then I can be Jesus' friends. But that goes against what Jesus actually told us in the prior verses. In verse 13, you're told that we're told by Jesus that, that there is a greater love on you. In fact, the greatest love is on you. And because you are so greatly loved, Jesus died for you. That you are so loved that the Son of God laid down his life for you to forgive you of your sins. 
That that's how great the love is that we have. And so, so the way that we should read this, the proper way to read it is like this, is since you are loved, since God has a great love for you, if you are doing what has been commanded, it confirms that you are a friend whom Jesus died for. That, that the commanding doesn't come first. It's not clean up your life and then you'll be a friend. It's God has loved you. God died for you. And now as you live your life doing what he commands, you confirm the reality that you are his friend. In other words, think of it this way. That Jesus' love language is obedience. It's obedience. And when you do what he says, he knows that you're taking him seriously as a friend. That's grace. That's the gospel. The gospel is not get your life cleaned up and then you are my friend so I will die. The gospel is I've loved you, I died for you, you're my friend, now let's go live life together. And Jesus says that life living together, this is what it looks like. That when you experience that divine love at such a deep level that you will be moved in your life to go to the others who are in your life, friends, family, relatives, neighbors, that you will go to them and that you will show them the same kind of love that has been given to you by God. Not as a slave, but as a friend who has been welcomed into the presence of God, of the Father. See, being a friend of God is an invitation to live in an endless reservation, in an endless reservoir of love, where we realize that even in our most unlovable moments, even in the moments of our great sin, even in the, the moments of our great mistakes, even in the moments of our great rebellion, that God's desire is to draw near to us and to shower us with love. Henry Nouwen is a great author, and, and here's what he says. He says, if you keep that in mind, if you keep the great love that God has for you in mind, then you can deal with an enormous amount of success as well as an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity. Because your identity is that you are the beloved. And long, long before your father and your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your teacher, your church, or any people touched you in a loving as well as in a wounding way, long before you were rejected by some persons or praised by someone else, that voice has been there always. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That love is there before you were born, and that love will be there long after you die. See, the cross is an offer of friendship that is never taken back. The cross shows that the great love that God has for you is real. And the moment that we enter into that relationship, we know what it means to experience God as friends. And that older lady who shook her finger at me and says, how dare you call Jesus your friend? She was wrong. She was wrong. That Jesus is a friend to the sinners. He's a friend to the unlovable. He's a friend to us in our deepest rebellion. 
that at every moment of our lives, love is poured out upon us. And if you would like to know what it looks like to have that kind of relationship with Jesus, I'm just going to invite you to use the text number that Angie mentioned earlier, 720-513-1933. Text the name of Jesus. And we'd love to answer the questions. We'd love to walk with you in this invitation into a relationship that is deeply satisfying and redeems the deepest level of your soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you, Lord, holding on to these great truths. That you are a friend. Those words, they reach to the deepest part of our souls. We long to hear that, that you are our friends. And so today, Lord, I pray. I pray for all the people in this room that as they as they navigate this life, as they, they navigate their journey of faith, that they would not fall into the stuff of religion. That for them, their, their journey of faith would not just be about the do's and the don'ts, but their souls would awaken to the relationship that you're inviting us into. And so, Lord, I pray that, um, that we would see it. I pray that we would embrace it. I pray that we would truly understand what it means to be your friend and to know that we swim in a reservoir of love where you are drawing near to us. Father, for those in the room and listening online who, who haven't experienced that yet, Lord, I pray that as you whisper to their souls that you would move in such a way that they would see what you accomplished on the cross for them to make this invitation real. God, we thank you. We love you because you first loved us. It is an honor to be called your friend. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We come together today remembering the great love that was shown to us. That through the cross of Jesus' body being broken, through his blood being spilt, it paved a way for us to truly be friends with God. And so today, we remember and we celebrate the body of Jesus. And we remember that in our most unlovable moments that there is a God who loves us, who spills his blood for us so that we might experience redemption. We drink together. In response to these great truths, we're going to sing. I'm going to invite you to stand in-house, online. You can take whatever posture you want. But we're going to sing the great old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. A song that speaks right out of these verses. Over the course of the next 20 minutes, if you need prayer, I invite you to make your way to the back. We'll pray for you there. Let's declare these truths together.